Parshas Noach. The courage to renew and redo and the patience to renew and redo. This life is fraught with challenges. So many endeavors do not conclude as we want them to. What we perceive as failure so oftentimes happens. And we go back to the drawing board and have to show the courage to start a project over. And moreover, the patience that even the second try, the third try, might not yield that perfect product, but brings us ever so closer, two steps forward, one step back. No less than Hashem himself in our parsha of Noah recreates the world, so to speak, restarts the great project of Bracious, and things remain imperfect. Noah himself in our parsha and his descendants have their own shortcomings. We will see tonight as we unpackage the parsha. The big picture theme of the parsha is Hashem himself is modeling for us the patience to renew and redo, even with an imperfect second or third product, but with the commitment to renew and redo, eventually the great goal is achieved. So let's begin with the name Noach itself. Noach the person, Noach the parsha. What does the name Noach actually mean? So the Torah tells us in last week's parsha, when Noach is born, his father says as follows, This child will bring nechama. He will bring a calming, a cessation of the accursed ground. No longer will it be so difficult to work the ground. You recall after Adam and Chava's failing, the Eitz Hadas, the earth was cursed. Gardening became very difficult. Well, Zayin Achamenu, this child will bring a calming, a, some degree of relaxation, cessation of that curse. It will be a bit easier to work the ground. Rashi explains in Noach's days they would invent the plow, which would make farming and gardening that much easier. And therefore the child was named Noach. From that word, Yenachamenu, he will calm the accursed state of gardening the earth. Now this issue, the inventing of the plow, would seem to be a rather petty detail in Noah's life. When I think of Noah, I think of the righteous zookeeper, if I may call him that. We think of all our various images, Noah with the dove, Noah caring for the animals. Do you have plow images in your head? It would seem to be a rather small detail that in his lifetime the curse the accursed state of the earth improved a bit because they had the tools to deal with it. Why is that his name? Why does that define who he is? A name defines a persona. There is some deeper mystery to the plow, the invention of the plow, the cessation of the curse of the earth in Noah's life. Well, just as in the medical profession, curing the symptom is not really the goal. The goal is really to cure the underlying disease. The fact that in Noah's days, the plow was developed, 
it was no longer so difficult to work the earth. That is really symptomatic of increased potential to rectify Adam and Chava's sin of the Eitz Hadas and do a better job morally, spiritually than Adam and Chava. Because Noach is, of course, an Adam take two. Just like the Adam of old, he is the patriarch of a new world. And he therefore has the opportunity to do a better job, to kickstart this project called humanity in a better way, having learned from the mistakes of the past. So the fact that it became easier to guard on the earth and in a physical sense, the curse of Adam Harishon began to calm well, that is really, as we're calling it, symptomatic of Noah's underlying mission, be a better Adam. You are the new patriarch of mankind. You could get this right now. And hence his name, Noah, defines who he is. And we will see, as we unravel the pattern of the Parsha further, Noah, not only the person, but Noah, the Parsha, is all about redoing the failed world of Beratius. In the marble, in the flood in our parsha, Hashem is not simply destroying mankind. Hashem is, in a sense, deconstructing the failed Beratius process, the failed creation of Beratius, and going to recreate the world with a second dose of energy, you might say, a second dose of optimism to redo it. Uh, where do I see this? Well, Let's go back to the opening scene of Beratius. What is the opening setting of Beratius? What is the stage of Genesis where, create the, where the articulation of creation begins in last week's Parsha? So it says as follows, in a rather mystifying scene, the Choshech al home. There was darkness on the face of the depth. Hashem's spirit was floating upon the water. There was a lot of water, and it was dark. Dark, deep, and water. Pretty gloomy scene. Dark, deep, water. Well, we will find all of these features. Dark, deep, and water. Choshech Tahom and Mayim. All in the marble. For starters, the marble was a lot of water. Moreover, it was very, very dark. How do I know that? I know that because after the marble, Hashem said, Yom yishposu, the sun will renew its orbit again. Explains Rashi, at the time of the marble, the sun wasn't orbiting properly. So it was a world of darkness, a world without normal sunlight. So here we have water, darkness, and moreover the term to home, the term the deep, the term the deep. Because when the Torah is describing the accumulation of water at the time of the marble, it says niftahu to home rabba, the great deep, the springs from the bowels of the earth called the tahom, called the deep open. So here we have all the characteristics of the opening scene of Bracious in the marble. Water, darkness, and to home deep. The pattern is too intriguing. Indeed, 
Hashem is taking the world back to the opening scene of Bereshis. And there's another clue in this direction. A splendid clue to this understanding that the Mabel was deconstructing Masa Bereshis. Because let's study yet another anomaly in terms of how the Mabel water is accumulated. It says, Va'arubos hashamayim niftachu. The skylights of the heaven opened. Rain fell because the skylights of the heaven opened. As they say in English, it, it was as though the very sky burst open. Now, generally water comes from clouds. Clouds are, of course, within our universe. Under the sky. We want to describe normal cloud water as the skylights of heaven opened, as though a hole was burrowed in the sky. The skylight of heaven, a burrowing a hole in the sky, actually implies that this water is coming from above the sky, through this hole in the sky. Because you recall in Parshas Bratius that when Hashem created the world on the second day of creation, Hashem made rakia lahavdil bein amayimumayim. He placed the firmament between upper waters and lower waters. So if Hashem is here at the time of the Mabal, as though cutting a hole in the heavens, Varubas making a skylight, so the water above the rakia could descend down, what we have here is a very compelling imagery of Hashem undoing one of the primal creations of Bracious, i.e. the firmament separating between the waters above the heaven and the waters below the heaven, well, here Hashem has though cut a hole in the heaven. So the waters above the heaven descend down and rejoin the water down here below. There's no more separation between the upper and lower waters, thus undoing the creation of the rakia, a fundamental process of Bracious. We could debate, of course, if this imagery is literal or figurative. Maybe it was cloud water, but it rained so much that it seemed as though the skies opened and the water was above the rakia. But what, whether it's literal or figurative, either way, the chumash is provoking to me yet another signal that Hashem is undoing the processes of voracious, because indeed, it's voracious take two. It's a new world. Hashem is doing this one again, taking it back to square one with grand hopes. And the pattern continues. From this perspective... I would like to see the resettlement of the earth after the Mabal as another Sheshasimei Bracious or Shivasimei Bracious, another seven days of creation. And there is splendid pr- proof to this effect in the text. You recall, as the water is receding, Noah sends out various birds from our beloved raven in Baltimore to what is even me more personally beloved, of course, the Yonah, the dove. And the language of the Chumash, as he's sending out the dove, is as follows. The Yonah was looking for menucha, was looking for rest. So he waited another seven days, and after seven days sent it out again to find rest. Here we have both the term menucha, rest, and seven days that he's sending out the Yonah 
in, in processes of seven days to find rest. This combination, both a quest on the Yonah's part to find menucha with the Chabas connotations, and the fact that it is over the course of seven days, too evocative of Shabbos, too powerful to be a coincidence. Indeed, resettling the earth was another Shabbos story. The world is being recreated, you see. And I suggest we were not, we are not the first person to note this verse concerning the Yonah. It is actually noted within a Shabbos Zemmer, a Shabbos hymn which many of us sing. Yonah Matzah Bo Manoach. The Yonah found rest on this day of Shabbos, we sing. Where is the author of this hymn, Rabbi Huda Halevi, getting that from? He's getting that from our textual connections. This very term, Manoach, Menucha, was what the Yonah was seeking over seven days and finally found it on Shabbos. Well, more than, a, more than an understanding of a hymn, what we have here is the continuation of our pattern. It's a new Masa Bracious, now with new opportunities, so the new Adam steps out onto the new world with high hopes and Hashem imbues him with these high hopes. Because what does Hashem tell Noah right as he's treading out into this new world? He tells them and he blesses them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, the, this verbiage precisely both commanding and blessing the person to be fruitful and multiply is exactly what was conveyed to Adam when he began his experience in his world. So this echo in the text, Hashem is directing Noah with the very same verbiage as Adam. Well, so clearly, Hashem is confidently with renewed hope, imbuing this new person, Noah, as an Adam take two in a new world, a new world, a second Paracious, with the ability to do great things. And it is this sort of commitment, courage, to go back to the drawing board without hesitations when we fail in life, without nursing resentments over our first failures, without overdwelling on failures of the past, simply the gumption to do it again, which is what I'm suggesting Hashem is teaching us here in the parasha, developed as we have developed it tonight. Hashem does it over right again, with the same language, the same confidence, and the same high hopes. And at this stage in tonight's presentation, it would be so beautiful. It would be so inspiring to believe that the second time around was utopia. The second Adam, now Noah, he got it right. He and his children, they got it right. It took a second iteration, but now he got it right. But of course, that's not what happened. And that is what actually what makes our parsha such an intriguing and relatable story. Because we know in our own lives, it is, not, it is generally not even in the second attempt that we usually get things right. 
So almost by design as a story in the Chumash, the high hopes of getting it right the second time around do not actualize and create this relatability we have in our own lives, imitating Hashem. Redos and even redos which, despite our high hopes, yet again don't work out. Because let's trace now the continuation of Parshas Noach, after Noach leaves the Teva. And we will see not simply mistakes on Noach and children's part, but we will see splendid correlations that Noach and children are making the very same mistakes of Parshas Parshas again in their world. It is the same mistakes. It is the horrific deja vu, where you can only almost imagine Hashem saying they're doing the very same mistakes again. Because for starters, right after Noah leaves the Teva, he fails very badly. This is Noah in all of his glory as the patriarch of mankind, the righteous Noah, who we know becomes intoxicated and rolls on the ground strip naked. Not the way we would want to envision the great saint. But there's more to it than that. The stigma of nakedness. That so unmistakably evokes the very issue of Adam and Chava, which brought about the stigma of being naked. And in both cases, there's a forbidden fruit which brought the stigma of nakedness. In the first case, the, the eight Tzadas, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and in the second case, it is the vineyard. And the pattern becomes even more intriguing when we realize that, according to one opinion in the Gemara, Adam's Eitz was also a vineyard. Now there is another opinion, that Adam's Eitz was actually a fig, fig tree, as brought up by the fact that after the Chet Eitz Adam and Chava clothed themselves, the Chumash says, in fig leaves. In the text, you don't need to turn to Michelangelo's portrait in the Sistine Chapel of the fig leaves on Adam and Chava. Well, what do you know? The fig leaf also figures in the story of Noah to bring out this correlation that it's an Eitz take two when Noah becomes intoxicated. How do I know that? Well, look at this Rashi. This Rashi, which until now has been mystifying, certainly mystifying to me. Rashi's describing how Noah planted his vineyard right after the marble. Where did he have vines or vine seeds so accessible? There was no Johnny Appleseed or Johnny Grapeseed who had planted vineyards. Where did he have immediately after the, ma- the marble of vineyard? So Rashi cites a medrash that Adam actually brought vines with him into the teva, into the ark, in order to replant vineyards. But Rashi just happens to add he also brought with him Fig branches. In Noah's quest here to plant a vineyard after the marble, he had vines and fig branches. Now, now, why do the fig branches find their way into Rashi, into, into the medrash cited by Rashi? We're talking about a vineyard. He has fig branches with the vineyard. Why do I care about those fig branches? But now you and I understand, of course, the fig branches in the, in the Noah intoxication story is supposed to be yet another evocative clue in case you have not yet gotten it. 
Rashi is telling us. This is a Tzadas take too. So clearly, so many clues coalescing together. It is so clear. And in light of the panorama which we have been revealing tonight, the deja vu now is overwhelming. Hashem tries his take too in the new world, does it again. And here we go again. You can imagine the divine angst. Certainly if I would be Hashem, if I may talk that way. The here we go again. And this is what makes it such a relatable story. Because we all have our here we goes again. With our redos. But in all fairness, this error is not quite as bad as the Eitz Hadath. For all the correlations to Eitzhadas, Hashem had never told Noah explicitly, don't consume a vineyard. The way he had told Adam and Chava, do not eat from the Eitzhadas. It wasn't the violation of an express divine commandment like Adam and Chava. It was simply a bad moral choice vis-a-vis forbidden fruit and the stigma of nakedness. So we could say that while it's deja vu, it's deja vu, you might say, with a lowercase d. Noach is repeating Adam's failures, but the music is on a lower octave. It's less dramatic. So maybe a bit of progress is being made. Maybe there is a step back, but maybe at the same time there's two steps forward. Noach is beginning the world not quite as, with not quite as horrific a prognosis as Adam's in the world. Now let's continue to study Noah from this perspective. The pattern is flawless. Because as we move on to the end of the parsha, beyond Noah to Noah's children, of course our eyes will be back on the Kain Hevel story, the story of the children of Adam, and see if we can find a correlation between the, between the issues, the mistakes of the first children of the patriarch Adam and Parshas Bratius, and the struggles of the children of Noah, the patriarch here of Parshas Noah. So we know the basic story. That following Noah's drunkenness, when he's laying naked, his children respond in different ways. Chum gleefully focuses on his father's nakedness, while Shem and Yafes respectfully, reverently cover their father's nakedness. So here we have a... Here we have a rift of sorts between Noach's children. Those who show respect to their father, shame and Yafas, those who don't show the respect, Chav. And I was wondering, might this rift, this parting of ways between Noach's children, be some echo back to the parting of ways and even the real dissension among Adam's children, Cain and Hevel, to the extent that Cain killed Hevel? Hmm. Well, there's a medrash cited by Rashi here in the Shem Chaman Yafa story, which makes this correlation to Kain and Hevel unmistakable. Because the medrash and the Gemara unpack for us, unravel what actually happened. What does it mean that Cham was eyeing his father's nakedness? 
the Gemara, the Medrash, has no compunctions to be rather graphic with us and actually tells us Chum castrated his father. When the Chumash talks about eyeing the nakedness of his father, he, he eyed it and he engaged with it. He walked up to his father in that condition and he actually castrated his father and rendered him impotent. Why so? He said, hey, father has enough children already. Here were three children, Shem, Cham, and Yefes, to inherit the new world. We don't need more competition, a fourth son. I'm going to castrate father. So you want to have a fourth child. Now, if you study the wording of the Gemara cited by Rashi, he says as follows. In his justification, supposed justification to castrate his father. He says, hey, think back to the days of Adam. Adam had two children and they fought over an inheritance. We're going to have the same issue fighting over an inheritance. We don't need another child here. So in fact, Chum's behavior, engaging his father's nakedness, castrating his father's nakedness, is, is in Chum's own words a repeat of were a rehashing of some of the drama of the Kain Hebel story. Now, if this graphic medrash wasn't enough to have us thinking here, why is this significant? Why is it significant? Strange story. Castrating his father echoes back to Kain. Well, let's go further here. If he's castrating his father, to impede the birth of a fourth brother, then essentially, I would argue he's killing off that brother, at least the potential for that brother. Well, that's exactly what Cain did. Cain killed his brother. So when you put the pieces together here, Cham is by his own admission struggling with a Cain Hevel issue of when the patriarch, in his case, Noach, is going to leave the world there's going to be a rivalry over the inheritance, and therefore he is targeting a brother or a potential brother. This is kind of how it's so clear here, and so clear how this fits into the greater pattern, how like a symphony, each instrument, each narrative in our story is fitting right into place here. This is Boratius Take Two with all the failings of Boratius Take Two and all the struggles of Boratius Take Two to bring out to us the Take Two is certainly not pristine. But in all fairness, again, as much as Cham is, you might say, following in the ways of Kayan, similar to Kayan, severe as Kayan's deed, his deed is not. Because, of course, even adopting this medrash cited by Rashi, this Gemara cited by Rashi, while Cain actually killed his brother, Cham simply castrates. He doesn't actually kill a living, viable brother. He simply precludes his birth. So again, mankind is repeating mistakes, but not quite on the same octave, not quite as dramatically. And then as our parsha continues, we have an entire society gone awry. We have the story of the Dar HaFlaga, the generation of dissension who built the Tower of Bava to fight against Hashem. Now I would argue this Dar HaFlaga generation of dispersion 
at the end of our parsha is symmetrical to the Dar Hamabal, the generation of the flood, at the end of Bereshis. And the parsha organizing itself this way, with a Dar Haflaga, a generation, as Chazal call it, of dispersion here in the end of the parsha. So symmetrical to the way last week's parsha ends with a Dar Hamabal, that same term used by Chazal, a generation of a flood, itself is pointing to an un- the continuation of our pattern. That just as Boratius, with all of its individual failures, the individual's failing, the Adam, the Kayin, then has a societal failure of, at large, the generation of the Mabel, so to Noach, in its attempted repeat, but unfortunately failure once again, ends again with a society gone awry, Dar Haflaka. And pulling out our magnifying glass and searching for clues, our creative mind finds some provocative clues in the Dar Haflaga story, the Tower of Bubble story at the end of our parsha, pointing back to the Dar Hamabal, that this is a Dar Hamabal take too. Because for starters, the very term used to describe this generation and the location of their tower in Bavel, which means mixed, Babel, a mixture of languages, itself is similar to the word Mabel. Because Rashi tells us that the word Mabel comes from the same root Bilbul, mixture, chaos. There was a chaos in the world. So here we have the very term Mabel reappearing in Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel. That's one suggestive clue, but perhaps even more explicit, let's turn to a medrash cited by Rashi, describing the location where the Tower of Buffalo was built. It says as follows, the place was called Shinar, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, in Mesopotamia. By the way, parenthetically, I will note, I believe Shinar is the source of the expression Sumer in Mesopotamian studies. But anyway, um, Midrashically, Rashi says, the word Shinar is a, a reference to an episode which happened after the Mabal. Shinar means floated. The bodies of the Mabal, the residue of the Mabal, in terms of the, the human debris, the corpses, floated down to this place, the land of Shinar, the land of Sumer, where the tower was built. Well, internalizing this Rashi, plugging it into the Pasek, the Torah is describing how the tower was built then atop the bodies of the Mabal, the corpses of the Mabal. Why does that matter? We are not studying anthropology of the earth, earth sciences. Why do I care that there is human debris from the Mabal below the tower? There must be a conceptual symbolism here. Well, indeed, because as we are studying tonight, 
Noah is a parashas bracious take too, not only in terms of the high points, but unfortunately in terms of the repetitive mistakes. Because Dar HaFlaga, the building of this tower, is in a sense a mobile take too, there is a physical imagery there that the tower is actually being built atop the very bodies of the mobile. It is a mobile take too. It, er- it is a resurrection perhaps not of those bodies, but via the tower built on top of them, of what such human failing was about. A final clue in the Dar HaFlaga story pointing us back to the Dar HaMabal. The Torah describes the leader of this tower of Bavel project, Nimrod, as a gibar, as a strong man, Huachalios gibar. He was a strong man, which Rashi explains he was strong to rebel against Hashem. That same term, strong, and Midrashic interpretation, strong to rebel against Hashem, can be found back at the time of the Mabal, at the end of Parshas Bracious. Hema Giborim, the children of that period, were strong. Rashi explains Limrod Bamakam to rebel against Hashem. So, putting all of these clues together, I am firmly convinced that here we have the crescendo. You might say this is a troubling crescendo of the repeated mistakes of Beratius, now reignited again and again from the Eitz Hadas take two in the form of Noach's vineyard to the Kain Hevel story re-erupting in Ham's issues vis-a-vis his father, his father's naked body and the like, and now the Dar Hamabel take two in terms of humanity again suffering global catastrophes and rebelling against Hashem. But again, in all fairness, once again, the mistake of Parshas Noach is not nearly as bad as the mistake of Parshas Bracious. The catastrophe is not nearly as bad. While it is catastrophic that after the people built the tower, they were dispersed, humanity was no longer united with common language and culture, mankind survived. Unlike Dar Hamabel, where mankind did not survive. So you see here once again that while there is repeated mistakes, it is not quite as bad. Noah has a struggle, a take to of struggle, but complete failure it's not. None of the mistakes are as bad as before. The project lasts, the world of Noah lasts. And finally, the text itself at the end of our parsha completes the loop, completes the pattern for us. Signs, so to speak, that John Hancock signature at the end. So large, making it so clear that this parsha is a take two of the last parsha, but a take two with some improvement. Because our parsha ends with a list of ten generations from Noah until Avram. Ela told Oshem, this is the genealogy of Shem, Noah, son, and it lists all ten generations all the way to the birth of Avram. And this is so corollary, a second P in the pod to the way Parshas Bracious ended, Zesefer told us Adam, the same language, this is a chronology, and exactly ten generations from Adam until Noah. So here we have again 
just as Ambrosius, the first patriarch, did not complete his mission, he had to. His the, the eyes of the reader is on ten generations later. Noah. Once again, in the end of our parsha, Noah does not complete his mission. The eye of the reader is ten generations later on Avram. So, on one hand, it's repeat failure, but on the other hand, the needle is moving. Adam advances to Noah, who for all his failings is not quite as badly studied as Adam. And then Noah advances the thread to Avraham. And of course, Avraham signals, heralds the Jewish people. And think where we are. And think if Hashem would have given up at these two earlier phases, Parshas Parashas, the Adam phase, or Noach, the Noach phase. We wouldn't now have the story of the Jewish people, the glory of the chosen people, which will be narrated in the parashas which follow in the Chumash, Lech Lecha and on. That taken as a whole, the message of our parsha is, it is so clear that phase two was high hopes, but incomplete, incomplete redemption, incomplete rectification. But Hashem and his patience goes through with it despite the repeated mistakes because the repeated, so-called repeated mistakes are improving ever so slightly. And Hashem values baby steps. And no greater vindication of Hashem's approach. Appreciate the baby steps. Be patient is evident that our parsha ends with Avraham and the Jewish people. We wouldn't be here if Hashem would have given up too quickly. And that is, I think, the greater message of our parasha as a whole, of the pattern of our parasha as a repeat of Bereshus, including with many of the Bereshus struggles that we traced so precisely, so perfectly. We too step up to the plate again. Don't nurse resentments over dwelling on the past. Do it again. And the second time too might be imperfect. But value the advancement and then try a third time. And push and push and push and push and push and push. And then with gumption, grit, we get there. As Hashem eventually gets there in the end of our parsha, the most perfect patriarch of all, Greater than Adam, greater than Noah is Avram Avinu, who's not only the patriarch of the Jewish people, but as Rashi tells us, the spiritual patriarch of all of mankind, who introduced monotheism, chesed, meaning to all of mankind. He emerges upon the seeming failures of Bereshus and Noah, because they are actually not failures. He, as the analogy has oftentimes been drawn to pearls in the ocean, pearls which are fashioned by the clams, apparently, who are irritated by sand, 
But as the clam is irritated with the sand, somehow in the irritation, the pearl emerges. That has always been a powerful imagery to me. I don't understand the earth science there, but it doesn't really matter. We feel irritation in our life. We feel the mucky dirt, the mucky sand. Well, if we go about that struggle the right way, that is how the pearl emerges. That is how the Avraham emerges. That is how our personal success emerges, not by giving up. The courage and the patience to renew and redo. And to bring this all together, I would like to present one final discovery that to me was mind-blowing. The Torah itself is pointing to us that for all Adam and Noah's mistakes, because Hashem pushed through with the project and Avrama then emerged, this time, he got it right. Because let's see if we can find the vineyard of Adam and Noah, the forbidden fruit of Adam and Noah that we traced in both stories, reappearing in Avram's life. The nakedness, the intoxication, all of that graphic stuff. Let's see if we could find that challenge reappearing in Avram's life, but this time the patriarch remains pristine. What am I talking about? You will not find such scandal in Avram's life. No, no, no nakedness, no wine. But you do find such a thing. Markedly similar in the life of Avraham's nephew, Lot. Lot is, of course, Avraham's nephew. Avraham's sidekick, initially Avraham's disciple. But then when Lot leaves Avraham and settles in stone, after Sodom is destroyed, what happens? We know what happened in the cave. The Torah lays a pretty bear. He drank wine. And just like Noah of old, whose was carnally exploited by his child. Noah, under the influence, was exploited by his daughters. The, the, The correlations are so remarkably similar. After a great catastrophe, a marble of sorts, when stone was destroyed, well, after his catastrophe, he too took to wine and was carnally exploited. It is so clear that the Adam and Noah failing is resurfacing. What is the message the Torah wants with all of this? Notice it is not Avraham, but it is Lot. And it is only when Lot left Avraham and abandoned Avraham's influence that he fell prey to the old issues of Adam and Noah. The implication is, it is only by rejecting the path of Avraham that we fall prey to those old issues of Adam and Noah. So long as Lod or any of us holds firm to the derech of Avram, the path of Avram, the derech of the Jewish people, the derech of Torah, we will be high road people. We will remain above all of that unsavory stuff. Studying that passage of Lot deeper, I believe the Torah is vindicating. Yes, indeed. Avraham is that more perfect patriarch, which not Adam was not and Noah is not. 
progress happens at the end. And actually, progress happens throughout the story because at the end, there's a real, real breakthrough. Here's Avram, here's the Jewish people. Avram and the Jewish people do not emerge detached from the past struggles of man, but are actually the culmination of the struggle of man now having pulled pulled itself up. This, this is, as I've been suggesting throughout the evening, not only the story of Adam, Noach, and Avram, but it is a model to all of us. Hashem and his great project of the world with his redos, and for all the deja vu mistakes, pushes forward, values baby steps of improvement of Parshas Noach, and then he gets there, this models for all of us. This is a mandate for all of us, living life in all of its life, in all of its olam hazah and all of its vicissitudes. When we must go, go, go back to the drawing board, lay out the easel again, lay out the parchment again, repaint our painting, but then the painting blotches up again. Stay at it, stay firm, and of course I'm referring to Projects of much greater import than a painting. Life projects, spirituality, family, everything which is of value. From time immemorial, this is the way we achieve success. It's never a cakewalk like the world of old, the eternal Torah is telling us. Success hinges on the, op- hinges on the grit, the courage to renew, redo, the patience to renew and redo. Thank you all very much. May we continue this cycle of the Kriyas HaTorah together with continued enthusiasm, continued creative spirit, continued neshama, continued heartfeltness. Thank you all very much. Baruch to you. Baruch to you. Genius, beautiful.